The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody here this morning, and a big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Uh, I know it isn't always easy to walk in a place like Common Ground, and just want to uh, encourage you to let us know how we can make you feel welcomed and feel free to come up afterwards and introduce yourself or connect with Andrew and Dan who are our program hosts today. Andrew's sitting there and I think Dan is in the corner over here. And uh, last week for those who weren't here I talked about this basic part of the practice of using an anchor to help establish this present moment awareness. And it, it is very much like a, a shift of realities. You know, when we're mostly, and it's not entirely, but when we're mostly in our thoughts about things, then that's what reality looks like. It looks like whatever meaning our thoughts are constructing. And then when we, you know, come to a place like common ground or wherever we run into these teachings and we're encouraged to kind of enter this other reality, which is sort of funny to call the present moment another reality, but it it does have that (laughs) flavor like, oh, there's a body here, right? We can be living the day and really be disconnected, not from the idea of the body, but from the direct experiencing of the body or even the emotional qualities that are present, right? We can be so in our thoughts about why I'm feeling what I'm feeling that we're not actually feeling what we're feeling. And then our thoughts have become sort of the dominant cue. So the feelings we might actually be feeling, if they don't correspond with the story we have about what we should be feeling or what I am feeling, we trust the story more than what's actually viscerally being felt in the body, in the mind. So the first part of our spiritual training, you know, following these teachings from the Buddha, is to come home, really, to come home to the present moment. And we use these very simple trainings. It's, it's basically we take something ordinary and we construct the intention to be interested in the breath, in the body, in the hearing. Any way in will work, right? doesn't have to be a particular way because what we're really doing is breaking the spell, the mind's fixation on the meaning our thoughts keep constructing. And it's not, again, it's really important to understand we're not pathologizing the meaning our thoughts construct. Sometimes the meaning our thoughts construct is really helpful, and sometimes it's really diluted, right? It's all over the place, the thoughts. But the problem is that we take the meaning the thoughts construct to be more than what they are. It's just a thought. And we're learning more and more to orient our life in this more immediate and direct way. And there's a very particular flavor about being in the present moment. One of the particular flavors is humility. 
Because arrogant certainty guaranteed, if you have any kind of arrogant certainty, it doesn't matter what it is, like I'm a jerk, I'm bad, I've always been bad, and I'm sure of that, that means the mind is identified with its thoughts about things. It's not in the present moment. It's lost in thought. Sometimes being lost in thought is quite toxic. The ideas the mind is identified with are harmful to ourselves and to others. And sometimes those thoughts that the mind is caught up in are relatively skillful for ourselves and for others. But either way, I mean, clearly we'd prefer less toxic thoughts to be caught up in than more toxic thoughts, right? But that's more on the therapeutic level, like what kind of thoughts are we caught up in. But in terms of real, more subtle spiritual practice, we're learning about not being caught up in any thoughts, having a more immediate or authentic, released relationship with life, with the present moment. And that really involves temporarily, remember it's temporarily, dropping the mind's addiction, attachment to the meaning and entering this space that has the flavor of humility, knowing that we don't know. Because knowing on this level, the way I'm using the word knowing, is in that sense of uh, having a picture, which is an abstraction, having a map, which is an abstract, and having a sense of who you are, who I am, what this is. Those people are bad. These people are good, right? Those kind of dualities. That means we're in our thoughts about things. And again, it's not a problem to have thoughts about things. The problem is is when we take those thoughts about things to be more than what they are. It's totally okay to have political opinions and to want to get out and vote, to want to speak truth to power. I personally feel like this is a good time for people to get involved <laughs> in terms of what's right and wrong, right? But getting confused by our political opinions, taking them to be, taking the perceived certainty, like, oh yeah, I think this is true, to be more than what it is. I think these people are confused. To take that thought to be more than what it is leads to hate and leads to the justification for all kinds of terrible things that we see being played out in the world right now. So there's a way to be quite <coughs> fearlessly involved in our families, in our intimate relationships, with our cats, with political issues, issues of justice. It's possible to be really involved, fearlessly involved, and humble. And because humility makes us more sensitive. It makes the mind and heart more nimble and creative, right? In the same way that the lack of humility really makes everything brittle and rigid and reactive, and it's exhausting, right? It takes a lot of mental psychic stress to hold arrogant certainty together, right? It's exhausting to be so sure. that this is right, or I'm wrong, or you're right, or whatever it is that we're sure about. And it's very enlivening in the deepest sense, in the emotional sense, spiritual sense, physical sense. It's really enlivening 
to learn how to inhabit this humility, which well, this is what we mean by being present, being relaxed, and and just it's useful to experiment even as you're hearing these words, like you know, whenever there's a pause, you know, notice sometimes we want to fill in that space, but to really em- enter, relax into that space of what we call the present moment, where it has the flavor of being open and undefined. It's just this being known, this being felt, this being seen. It's only when the thinking mind, often, not always, motivated by greed and aversion, feels uncomfortable with the undefinedness or the openness of the space and fills it in. Buddhism is great. I'm going to really do this practice, you know. And we have another savior. And then all of a sudden, any image of not doing the practice is the image, uh, is the enemy. You know, like the restlessness of my dog at home who gets in the way of my sitting practice. Enemy. You know, I never should have adopted that dog. Or something like, like that. Or, you know, I shouldn't have had kids. You know, kids get in the way. Or I shouldn't have this, I need to retire early. You know, or whatever makes life problematic. And then there we're off to the races, one thought leading to the next. Instead of a more authentic relationship with the present moment would be, oh yeah, racing thoughts are like this now. This is the mind, the dog chasing its tail, right? The mind just spinning. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. Has our spinning mind led to any resolution? No. And this is why we train the mind. It's this basic insight that dawns. If we're fortunate human beings, if we're not so overwhelmed by the difficulties of being a human being, like poverty or other kinds of oppressive things that can happen to people in life, if we have enough space that we can be reflective, we, the first sort of insight really is just this distinction between a life defined by worldly, what in Buddhism we would call something like worldly pursuits, trying to get my act together, trying to get my personality together, trying to get my partner together, <laughs> trying to get my family together, trying to get my world together, my house together, my body together. Now, so when I say worldly pursuits, this is everything we're mostly doing. So not just the bad stuff we're doing. This is also the relatively good stuff we're doing. This is not all bad, these worldly pursuits, but they don't resolve the basic problem. So if we're fortunate enough to be reflective, we come to this place of crisis. Sometimes it's just gradual and pervasive, and sometimes it really hits us like hitting a wall. You know, we're there, we're 45 or we're 22, and we just realize that my life doesn't make sense. All these pursuits, these worldly pursuits of getting my personality together, getting my family together, getting the world together. Basically, they're utopian visions, whether it just involves a utopian vision of my body or a utopian vision of my relationship with my partner, or my world, whatever it is, it's some, if only, then I'll be happy. 
right? And we're putting the happiness uh, on this whatever we're focused on. Training my dog. doesn't matter what it is. Getting the new electronic device that will keep my life orderly. And then I'll, and then I'll be happy. So whatever it is, getting healthy again. <clears throat> I had a bad cold last week. I'm still in the middle of it. And uh, it's like, oh God, when I get my life energy back, you know, then I'm really going to get my to-do list down to reasonable size and I'm going to sort of change my life, you know. I'm going to find a way to be a real, honest-to-goodness spiritual seeker and be in the world and respond to what needs responding to. So this is our orientation. And the spiritual awakening is when we begin to doubt those thoughts. We see them, right? And we feel how compelling they are. And they, these are the wholesome versions, right? They're the unwholesome, unwholesome versions. Like when I get into that gated community where the people I don't want to be around aren't around, you know, and move to a red state or move to a blue state or whatever it is for us where we feel like I'm with my tribe. And finally, we don't have to deal with those wrong people. So even the good sort of versions of getting in control, we begin to have some sp- suspicion like, oh, that's, that has the flavor of being stressful. That has the flavor of being endless, never resolving the basic problem. And we go looking for a different resolution to anxiety. And let's just call that other camp spiritual pursuits as opposed to worldly pursuits. You can come up with your own words if you don't like worldly and spiritual. But it's we're really talking about a shift of orientation. Right? And that's why we have places like Common Ground. It's for people who have some intuition, some suspicion, or they hit the wall and their whatever had been their pursuits don't make sense as much anymore. And they're interested in another way. And the first thing we have to do is we have to break the spell. Because all of our internal um, systems are about pursuing worldly answers to any anxiety, any uneasiness that we feel. Well, go get a chocolate bar, Mark. You're feeling this? Go get some chocolate. You know? Or go do this. Get in a relationship. You know? Or find a fun thing to watch on the internet. Or you know, clean my house. I mean, even relatively wholesome things like get my little micro-universe organized. I don't care how chaotic chaotic it is out there. My files are organized. (laughs) The bathroom is clean. I mean, this is like kind of my approach, being a controlling type. It's like the world can be chaotic and, you know, suffering, messiness, but my little universe... Got it down. And just don't come in, you know. And then it, <laughs> it makes it very hard to be in a relationship with another person when you're that way. <laughs> Did you leave that there? Don't you remember me saying that things like that don't belong there? <laughs> How I find that to be an existential threat. So the, when the first thing that 
happens when, I mean, the first instinct or spiritual instinct is don't be captivated by all these, if only, then I'll be happy, right? So that's where we ground in the experience of the body or something like that, right? We, we need some counterweight to picking up the next, if only. If only I adjust my posture, then my sit will be good. If only I can get back to my breath, right? So it even infects, the if only infects our meditation practice too. It, we're never far away from this. We're always on the front line. And I think it's okay. I mean, I know there are a lot of these sort of military images in Buddhism. Buddha was raised as sort of a warrior caste. Um, you know, so he was trained to be a warrior and prince in that sense. So there's a lot of this. But it is, we're in this battle really between these two orientations all the time. And so it infects our spiritual, just like the spiritual orientation can, and it, we need to have it infect everything out there in the world, our business relationships, our intimate relationships, our getting involved in making the world a better place relationships. Right? So we have to see this fork in the road everywhere, absolutely everywhere, between a worldly orientation and we're calling what we're calling a spiritual orientation. And the spiritual orientation is to be curious. So because we're not thinking we know what to do, we have humility, right? Thinking we know what to do would be, if only, then I'll solve the problem. If only I get my posture together. Oh, can't get it together? I'm going to sign up and do yoga, you know? I said, like, I had this deep, kind of uh, powerful awakening experience when I first got into meditation <coughs> way back in 1982. And I changed my life around. I changed my job. I decided I had read this book. Some of you have read this famous book, Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. is one of the early books here in the West on Buddhism. His center was still going and strong in San Francisco, so I enrolled in grad school out in the San Francisco area and bought a van and drove out to, you know, and I immediately, before school started, went to the San Francisco Zen Center, you know, and they didn't even, I, I had been a runner for through high school and college and I was so stiff and I couldn't sit. And especially in the Zen tradition, you know, they make a big thing about the Zen posture is sort of their main anchor. Like we use breath and body. The, often in Zen practice, it's the uh, integrity of the posture itself that's really what is used as the anchor. And, um, you know, it was very Japanese because Suzuki Roshi was a Japanese person. And, you know, in the Asia, they didn't rely on chairs as much. And so sitting cross-legged was sort of easier stretch for, than for a lot of us Westerners. But in any case, it was like I couldn't handle like just being there. It was just like physically I just couldn't. Ha- and there was like no option for me. And so got to do yoga. You know, I was like, and then I'll be able to sit, and then I'll deal with my existential crisis. You know? So it's just it's funny how that, how that sort of plays out in our mind. It, it's everywhere. But where we really have start having an authentic relationship with the spiritual orientation versus the worldly is when we see that it can't be fixed or we begin to open Right? So that's the humility place. Like, 
I don't know enough to do anything. I have to go back to square one. I have to be willing to be a learner. I can't go right into action. It's not that action isn't needed, but first we have to let the humility sink in, knowing that we don't know. It's not easier to be a beginner, and this is actually really, some of you maybe, you can, that book hasn't been dated. It's still a really good book. And one of the chapters in that book, if I'm remembering correct, correctly, is something like, it's called The Beginner's Mind. You know? And it, in, in that, Suzuki Roshi is talking about, like, you know, <clears throat> in an expert's mind, there's very few possibilities. In the beginner's mind, there's a lot of possibility, right? Because there's no certainty. That mind is open. That's called being mindful. When we're mindful, we have beginner's mind. Because we're not opening with an agenda. We're opening for the sake of opening. We're relaxing for the sake of relaxing. Not in order to become, in order to get, or even in order to fix. And so sometimes, at least I like to say, and I think it's pretty central to the path that the Buddha laid out, that in this spiritual orientation, the spiritual movement in our hearts, we're only allowed one desire. There's one desire that doesn't complicate and agitate the mind, and that's the desire to understand in the deepest sense. That desire is grounding and stabilizing. Every other desire comes from a place of arrogance, like if I get some chocolate, I'll be happy. If I get healthy, I'll be happy. I'll be fixed or whatever. But the desire to understand comes from the place of knowing that I don't know. Humility, right? And what does it lead to? It maximizes learning. Knowing that we don't know maximizes insight, learning. Waking, it, waking up. That's how we become a, That's how we transform our life is we, as an egoic being, as somebody not wanting to suffer, I put all my cards into this orientation, learning. And none of my cards into thinking I know. And these are the folks, these are the moments that are actually productive, where we get a little closer to understanding how to be a human being. And this is more like, in Buddhism we call this, worldly orientation, samsara, the endless cycles of suffering. And the Buddha had some pretty provocative images about samsara. One <laughs> is especially poignant. There's a couple that are especially poignant. But just about how long in these cycles of suffering, of keep you know, going back to the if only, then I'll be, he says, as long as it would take to wear down a mountain of solid stone, you know, granite, seven miles in diameter, seven miles high, it's pretty, that's higher than Mount Everest, right, from the base to the top, and only once every hundred years a crow would fly by with a long silk scarf in its beak and would fly over the top of that mountain and that scarf would rub the top as long as it would take to wear down that mountain, that's how long we can wander. Thinking that if only 
And that's what we do. We, we do the if only, if only, and then we get existentially frustrated because nothing's happening and we want to give up. But that giving up is just another if only. If only I give up. If only I get out of this. If only I just can go to sleep and not wake up or find some entertainment or drink enough or use enough drugs, then I'll be free of the pain of my heart. So the <clears throat> extinction variation of if only is just another variation of if only. You know, and then we give up on that because we always end up waking up. We, it's like uh, Sharon Salzberg tells the story of a person on a tightrope, you know, and every if only is like that, that's a grasping move and we lose it. We fall, freak out, but we always end up on another tightrope. And then another thing engages mind, another if only, and we lose our balance. Right? And the spiritual path is realizing we're on a tightrope and learning to stay in balance and not be confused from everything that's spinning around us, mostly coming out of our own mind, of course, or our, own, our reactions of our mind to what's happening around us. But just normalizing it all, oh, yeah, that's greed, that's aversion, that's disgust, that's lust, that's peace. That's this, that's that. And learning to be right in the middle, undefended, open, humble. So we want a sense of how uh, that sort of endlessness of what we have been doing because we need a lot of strength to train the mind to be in this other mode to be in the present moment. I'm sure you notice today, just like it isn't easy for us to be with the, the train with the body or to train with the breath in the body or to train with hearing or with whatever means to stay in this place of humility. Oh yeah, it's just this being known. Because it really feels, I mean, it is directly a challenge to the doer doing the if only, then I'll be happy, Right? that feels like it's going to die because it does moment by moment die because it's not being picked up. That psychological pattern of being the doer, doing the if only then, that psychological pattern isn't being activated. Another psychological pattern is being activated. What's being known? Oh, this is being known. It's just this experience being known. So that is the most primal reality in our subjective sense. Something is being known. So the spiritual approach is to really uh, attune to this primal level of being. Something is being known. Like I have so much humility. I am so clearly aware that I don't know much about suffering and the end of suffering. I'm going to go right to the primal level of what it is to be a human being, which is, moment by moment, something is being known. Something is being known. And even if, I, if the mind is judging the something that's being known, then it notices, oh, judging's being known. Or you feel like, I'm finally getting this. That thought, I'm finally getting this, is being known. So we reduce everything to this primal level. This is what we mean by present moment awareness. Something is being known. 
something is being known. And the something, the object that's being known, it doesn't matter. It could be the most sublime experience of peace. Sublime experience of peace is being known. Or it could be the most enraged, hateful quality of your mind. Hate is being known, being felt. It's like this now. In the body and mind, it's just this experience being known. So it has this taste of being a profound affront to the agency of doing, the sense of, I've got to do it. But it's that mode really allows the doer... See, the doer is not going to go away, obviously. I mean, can you imagine being a human being without doing? I mean, even if you just choose to sit on your couch for the rest of your life, that's doing. There's no way to not do. So we don't need to worry about not doing. It's just a question of what the doing is coming out of. What understanding is the doing coming out of? And right now our doing is coming out of the false belief in, if only, then I'll be happy. And now we're grounding the doing in this very primal, psychological primal recognition of this is being known, this is being known, this is the continuity of awareness, present moment awareness. This is being known, this is being known. And so doing will still happen, but the doing will just be the next thing being known. Oh, going to a march is being known. Having expectations, being known. Being disappointed, being known. Judging others, being known. Right? Making love, being known. Getting pregnant, being known. Having a child, being known. Panicking about whether we let the child see a screen, being known. I mean, so it doesn't matter if you're living a so-called hermit existence or you're living in a very engaged way, brave way, and having kids or getting involved in this way or that way. But the, the emphasis is on this humble way of relating to the present moment. Really understanding that we don't know and then making that central so that when we act in the world, when this personality expresses itself, because we're taking the, like when we're doing the if only, then we're controlling the personality. No, 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 not that. If only this, then you'll be happy. If only that, you go to hell, right? So we're in this sort of parental role with our life and everybody around us when we're in the if only. When we're doing the spiritual approach, we know we don't know like what the personality should or shouldn't do, right? I mean, we have some ideas, but we know we don't have certainty. That may, may be a better way of saying it. We know we don't have certainty. So we emphasize being intimate. This is being known, this is being known, this is being known. The personality is still going to do what it's going to do. The forces of motivation and intention and action, they're still alive and well. And right now we're not in that controlling mode because we know we don't know with certainty. So now we're just observing the doing from this point of view, this is being known, this is being known, and we're being the learner. So if we do end up doing something that turns out to be the cause for suffering for ourselves and others, 
this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. The mind learns, the heart learns. Or if we do something really skillful, the heart learns. And what does it learn? Well, the Buddha kind of creates a roadmap, but it, that roadmap doesn't help. We have to check it out. But basically he says, when your actions are motivated by greed, anger, and delusion, you're creating suffering for yourself and others. And when your intentions are motivated by compassion and kindness and the capacity to let go, to be generous, to be non-stingy in life, your actions, what you set in motion for yourself and others, is releasing, freeing, liberating. But you can't do that, like, okay, I get that, and turn that into an if only. If only I'm generous, then I'll be happy. Because it really has to be organic. It can't be an imitation of generosity, compassion, and kindness. It has to really come from this depth of knowing that we don't know and really observing directly. Because otherwise, being compassionate can be another greedy mode. If only I become a compassionate human being, everybody will love me and I'll even love myself, I think. Right? It becomes just another egoic trip. So we have to go this way of humility, this way of not knowing, this way of this is being known, this is being known, and really let the personality loose. That's why the practice is liberating way before we become a good human being, a skillful human being. Even when we're still acting out unskillful personality patterns, we will have a lot more freedom than we had before we started to practice. Because when I'm acting out my defensiveness in front of my partner, you know, but I have some of my practice operating, I'll realize, oh, being a jerk is being known. Being defensive is being known. Seeing the reaction is being known. Seeing the forgiveness is being known. Laughing together is being known. Acting out again is being known, right? So it's like the whole drama is just another thing being known, another thing being known. But all of it allows for this deepest kind of learning, what in the tradition we call insight, just to kind of point to a more primal learning. And that desire really we can trust, the desire to understand and to take on the practices, the way of being, the way of paying attention that supports this you know, expression, this desire to understand. So if we really want to understand we're willing to put down any fixed views about anything and let everything play itself out, including our personality. So that's important because a lot of times people feel like if I'm emphasizing the understanding, I have to be in the passive mode. And it's a confusion because the basic training is sitting still. So people misunderstand that putting an hour in every day and going on a retreat a couple times a year and sitting still a lot during those, or walking like a zombie when we do our walking meditation, people presume that means that passivity, not laughing, not playing, not getting involved in the world, is the way forward. But that's not true. That's, that's to be figured out moment to moment, what's skillful, what is unskillful. It can't be a fixed view. That's the point. We can only live our lives moment by moment to moment. But the ego wants the map, if only, right? That's the map, this idea. If only I had, you know, it used to be a million dollars. Now it has to be a billion (laughs) dollars. Then I could finally, you know, 
fix my life and maybe do some other good things in the world, right? Whatever we imagine. It used to be before we were spiritual people, it was like, have an island, right? That sort of idea that we're, I'd be away, but no one could touch me. Now it's like, oh God, even if I'm on an island, I'll realize that all those people are hurting. So then we have to fix the world too, damn it. You know, we have to, but whatever it is, <coughs> you know, it's like we're not going to have a map. We're not going to have an idea that we then, okay, impose on people. This is exactly what has allowed, you know, generation after generation, century after century of colonization and oppression. It's the same thing, you know, if we just fix this problem, turn these people into Christians or, you know, get rid of these people or asphalt this land or, you know, then no more mosquitoes. You know, if only we do this, drain the swamps, then no more snakes, no more mosquitoes, no more earth, you know. This is, it's exactly the if only that has created these problems that we're in, in the middle of. So I'll leave it here. The children will be coming in but it'd be nice to hear from at least one person your own reflections on what's been said today or question that comes up. Anything that comes to mind that you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Julia. Uh, I'm Julia. I'm afraid if I don't say something about this today, it will kind of float away or, or something, um, which makes me sound like I'm grasping it. But um, I think it's more... Um, you said during your talk which thank you for that and thank you for coming while you're sick um, you said something about this practice being an act of courage and sort of showing up and being intimate and then um, I think what's also been coming up for me a lot um, especially what's been coming up a lot is that this practice is an act of love and generosity to myself. Um, And that feels, just practicing in that way just brings me right into the present moment in a way that I wasn't really aware of. And it doesn't feel selfish, it just feels loving and a little courageous. Um... And it's easier for me to do it right here with all of you. And then there's the stepping out of common ground and into the car and into the house and into the work and all of that. And then the other thing you said, so here's what I'm going to try, is what you said about the fork in the road every moment. So every moment then I get to choose World, what did you say? Worldly and yeah, spiritual yeah, or spiritual. So, am I going to choose to be loving and generous to myself? Because, like, what else is there? If I'm not loving and generous and present now, and now, and now, and now, I'm not living. This yeah. is not a life. And not only not living, but we're contributing whatever that hate or that tension that is 
the opposite of, yeah. So I'll just also mention, last night I was at a music event that was, there was love in the room. And the moment we left, I could hear behind me the judgment and the hate and the, and again, I thought it just has to start here. It just, like, the moment we step out, it just, so, fork in the road. Yeah. So, thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks. That's a nice place to end. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.